you know, disasters like what we've been living through with COVID uh, just just make us numb. Uh, it, it makes us afraid. Uh, uh, we 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 have this sense of hopelessness and desperation. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know how it's how long it's going to go. They, they make us doubt our brothers and sisters and our fellow uh, human beings that we share this planet with. But it even makes us doubt God. Uh, it, it can bring out the worst in us. And, and, and it's an ongoing challenge to maintain a positive attitude, maintain uh, 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 an optimistic out, uh, attitude moving forward. And, and it requires just about everything we have uh, to, to maintain that civility and, and that brotherly, that sense of brotherly love on Facebook, social media, uh, uh, driving in all of the different activities that, that we're attempting through this time. Our text today comes from Isaiah chapter 40. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles, uh, it will be on the screen in just a second. But for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been giving the people of Israel a message of judgment and punishment. Isaiah says their cities are going to be destroyed. People are going to be taken captive. And that happened in two different waves of exile first to Assyria and then to Babylonia. The people expressed their grief through laments like what we find in the book of Lamentations or psalms like what we read in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. A, ref a refrain that appears five times in the first chapter of Lamentations says, there is none to comfort her, Israel, and sometimes the prophet says, none to comfort me. Jerusalem as a people are like that woman who has lost husband, children, and just sits desolate, not knowing where that comfort is going to come from. And so beginning in chapter 40, God wants to proclaim comfort and we're going to hear four different voices in this reading. The first voice we hear is that of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. God himself wants to comfort his people. And notice that he calls them my people, and he refers to himself as your God. God had chosen this group of people beginning with Abraham and all of his descendants and had promised to be their God and that they would be his people. And in spite of the challenges and the disobedience and the sinfulness and the lack of faithfulness, God has not forgotten that promise. He has allowed punishment to come upon them. But that punishment was never meant to destroy. It was rather meant to refine and purify and guide them back to a restoration with him. 
three different ways these first two verses, or actually it's in the second verse, emphasize that God has completely removed the barrier of sin. Sin is a burden, and God has lifted that burden. Sin incurs a penalty, and God has proclaimed that that penalty has been paid for, pardoned and forgiven. Sin also involves punishment. But God says the punishment is enough. And the scriptures teach us that at the end of the day, even though we might think it's unfair, the punishment we receive is never as much as we deserve. Comfort, comfort my people, says the voice of God. But then in verse 3, we hear another voice, unnamed. And this verse, uh, and this voice says, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it. The Lord has spoken. You know, we spend most of our time thinking about how do we make that path from earth to heaven? How do we get to heaven? The Israelites were concerned about how do we get to the promised land? How do we get to heaven? But, but these verses don't talk about us getting to heaven. These verses talk about a highway from heaven to earth, from God to us. And so we see this desire that God has to come to us and the need to prepare the path. Now, in ancient times, when the king was being carried on the shoulders of his followers and his servants, uh, uh, people would go out before and make sure there were no potholes and they would make sure that the ride was smooth. We have shock absorbers on our cars to help us out uh, with that today. And we have uh, civil engineers and we have any number of surveyors and others who will make that uh, work of keeping the roads as smooth and as with as minimal amount of curves here in South Florida, we don't have many mountains to speak of. But if you notice beside every major highway, uh, interstate, uh, uh, Tamami Trail, uh, Alligator Alley, there's going to be a canal. And that canal has been dug so that there can be um, fill in dirt to lift up the highway. And so uh, it won't, in the best case scenario, uh, won't be flooded over. But the idea is to make sure that the path from heaven to earth is free from obstacles. The goal is to see God's glory. And it's astounding that the text says that all people, not just God's people, all people will see it. John the Baptist used this text in connection with Jesus' coming. And through Jesus, we see the fullness of God's glory. And he ministered to all people and was seen by all. But preparing for God's coming today doesn't mean arranging details outside. It doesn't mean fixing the streets and the, pave, uh, the pavement. 
It talks rather about preparing our hearts and our lives. I want to share a parable written by Doug Mendenhall that might ring true. He writes, Jesus called the other day to say he was passing through and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I said, sure, love to see you. When will you hit town? I I, I mean, it's Jesus, you know, and it's not every day you get a chance to visit with him. It's not like your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh your having to move and sleep on the sleeper sofa. That's when Jesus told me he was actually at a convenience store on the interstate. I must have gotten this Bambi in the headlights look because my wife hissed, What is it? What's wrong? Who are you talking to? So I covered the receiver and told her Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. <laughs> and she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in, an, in that effective way a Marine drill instructor gives guidance to recruits. My mind was already racing with what needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think we were reprobate, loser, slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which is blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been half-watching. I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show. It was tuned to. Plus, I turned off the kids' set out on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus. (laughs) Six minutes from now. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for that first good impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the front window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long, hard work, so I let it go. What could I improve in four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases, so I stuffed it back in the box. I mean, Jesus doesn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back and picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why did we buy so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wash. My wife tossed the dishes in the sink. I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog. With one minute, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. Then the doorbell rang. Can you imagine what it would look like in your home or in your life if Jesus announced he was coming to your house? I think one of the things the parable uh, draws me to is that we worry about the exterior stuff. We want it to look good. Jesus would brush past all that. He would ask us about what's in here. Verse 6, we hear another voice. This voice is also unnamed A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? 
Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades quickly in the flowers in a as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Does that sound like comfort to you? That concept is used in a number of different places throughout Scripture to emphasize that we are all fragile and temporary. And if we haven't figured that out by now, all we have to do is think about the reality that this virus that no one can see with the naked eye has destroyed life, not just in our city and in our state and in our country, but for the entire world, an invisible, unseen virus. But, but that's not the focus that Isaiah is giving this message. I think for the people listening, this message states that, yeah, you know what? Despots don't live forever. Dictators won't last. Even though their lives look like oak trees, the reality is they're like flowers. The hot breath of God can wipe them out. And so this reminder compares the human rulers with God's rule. And God and his word, the words of his mouth, stand forever. There's one more voice that we read in verses 9 through 11. And for me, this is one of the more fascinating voices. O Zion, referring to the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem and all the inhabitants. O Zion, Messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops, shout it louder, O Jerusalem, shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, here's what they should shout. Your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. The message, God is coming. But who's the one proclaiming this message? God's very people. Up to this point, God and perhaps the celestial beings were the ones making these proclamations. Now it's God's very people who are joining in to announce that the king, our God, is coming. And with him comes his mighty arms. And those arms are powerful and they will vanquish any foe. But those arms are also gentle and tender to pick up the struggling lamb, to guide the sheep in a way that is full of tenderness and compassion. What does comfort look like for you today? It's interesting that throughout Scripture, God never promises that all suffering will cease. He never suggests that the brokenness of human existence will stop. 
What, what Scripture does affirm is that God will be with us every step of the way while we go through the storms of life, while we suffer and while we experience loss. The movie Slumdog Millionaire won eight Academy Awards in 2009. Tells the story of Jamal, a young man from the slums of Mumbai, India, and his unwavering love for Latika, a beautiful girl he met in the very same slum. They're separated for years. They, they see each other for one brief moment. But Jamal never stops looking for her. And against impossible odds and, and uh, a, a, a trip down uh, uh, a who wants to be a millionaire type of a show, at the last scene, Jamal and Latika finally unite. And she has this beautiful, long yellow scarf covering her head. And as he pulls down the scarf so that he can kiss her, he sees this long scar go down the, uh, on the side of her face that her captors, the ones who had kidnapped her, she looks down in shame, her eyes full of tears. And Jamal takes her face in between his hands and lifts her face up to look at him. And then he kisses her. But he doesn't kiss her on the lips. He kisses her scar. And it's his way of saying, it's okay. His kiss didn't remove the scar but it communicated that will not stop me from loving you. In Revelation 21, we find this amazing description of what life will be like with heaven, with, with God in heaven. And one of those descriptions is that he will wipe away all our tears. Not only ours, but humanity's tears, billions and billions of tears. Tears that have been shed because of evil and suffering. Tears that have been shed because of what people have done to us. Tears that have been shed because of what we have done to people. And what God says is, for now, there will be tears. But there's coming a time when I will remove those tears. And those tears will not stop me from loving you and all of his people. So this text encourages us to welcome the kisser of scars, the kisser of tears, the one who gives our lives the hope and the stamina and the perseverance we need. So how do we prepare? <laughs> it's not by picking up our house. Now, that might be important, especially in terms of maintaining peace at home. But it's rather by preparing our hearts. It's by hearing and listening and paying attention to God's voice. I come to give you comfort. I come to forgive your sins. I come to show you my glory in its fullness. Now, I want to share something that I'm doing and I apologize for not mentioning it last week, but I didn't learn about it until this week because it started on December 1st. And so I found out about it on Tuesday and I thought, whoa, why haven't I done this before? 
So beginning on December 1, you're going to have to read to catch up. Beginning on December 1, read one chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And every day you read one chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke has 24 chapters, and that will take you up to Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day, read John 1. that talks about how Jesus came in the flesh. Now, let me warn you, chapters 1 and 2 of Luke are, are, are stout. They're, they're pretty heavily packed, and so uh, uh, it, it might take you a little bit to, to get caught up. But you can get caught up by tomorrow, I'm sure, if you spend some time this afternoon. Hear God's voice. Know that he forgives. And see his glory revealed in Jesus. As always... If we can pray with you and for you and help you. If you've decided that you want to change your life in such a way that you need to be baptized, we'd love to help you with that. Please let us know, either in the chat, email, text, or by phone. Our brother Cheryl is here and he'll lead us in prayer as we close. God bless you.